down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down door. Drinking half gowns and calling for more. Drinking, Drinking wine, wine spooty ooty, indeed. <laughs> as as Sick McGee says in our intro song. Uh, yes. That's uh, what we are doing here today. Uh, I'm Jacob Lindsay, and I'm joined by Mason Joseph. As always, um, we are yeah. abolitionists doing a show about wine and you know anarchist topics or whatever interests us uh at the moment um, obscure libertarian principles from walter block <laughs> yeah who by the way was on uh the was not called the johnny rocket Launchpad anymore it's called blast off with johnny rocket mm. uh, i'm not really clear on why he changed it but for some reason he did i uh, think it's because he and his wife broke up and she was on the show oh that could be uh i don't know I yeah i don't know i don't i don't even i didn't even know that that was his wife um but whatever the deal is uh he's um got a new show and they've they had Walter Block on and it was a pretty good episode and he actually talked a little bit about something that you and I talked about which was uh the sociobiology of why people are not libertarians when it would seem like to you and me on its face that libertarianism would maximize you know the advantage and would create an environment that would allow for human reproduction at the highest but when Walter Block says you take you take a look at it, it's there's uh there's kind of two ways to look at it. There's sort of two ways to do it. You can either directly help somebody or indirectly help somebody. And the indirect way is uh not always clear that it's going to help. Whereas mm-hmm. the direct way it is clear. And when you're in a very small tribe, it makes sense that, you know, if you know Bob is sick one day, you take care of him, and if you're sick the next day he'll take care of you. Makes sense in a tribe since you know, you're at a time when there's maybe a million humans on earth and you're, it's unlikely you'll meet very many other people. Mm. And, but then in our current world, it, it doesn't seem to make sense that during like a hurricane disaster, you would charge, you know, $50 for a quart of orange juice. But it, mm-hmm. it does make sense because we live in a market system and the market system would send signals out to people in, you know, Montana or New York or California or wherever that, holy crap, Orange juice is going for fifty dollars a quart. Let me get some orange juice down to wherever the heck the uh, hurricane disaster is. So mm. you and I have talked about that before, and we shared kind of a clip that Johnny Rocket was talking about, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, it is pretty cool. But so that's kind of on our agenda today is to go over the Homestead principle, in particular, an article that Walter Block wrote um, called uh, "Popsicle Sticks and Homesteading: Land for National Preserves," which. <laughs> specifically is about uh, the homesteading principle, but I've also got some other pretty good articles that I've added to the show notes that I think people will enjoy. And uh-huh. um, if you listened last week, you could, you probably have read the article because I put it in the show notes and um, you'll be able to, you know, kind of follow along with what we're talking about. And obviously we'll explain it, but first wine spooty So yes. um, what do we have today, Mason, since you picked this one out and we're both, we're both uh, doing the same wine this week. So we are drinking the winking owl Cabernet or California Cabernet Sauvignon um, from Aldi. And it's the winking owl is their wine brand and this is their cab um so this is what i was drinking last week that i didn't really want to talk about um kind of with the goal of i knew jacob could access an ld and i think the show works really well when we both try the same wine yeah and you know it's it's fun to relive 
certain aspects of early show. So yeah, I yeah. think I think that that's fun. Foxy, Foxy's in the background barking at something. So, uh, but I don't know if that's being picked up on the microphone. But it is. Oh, is it? Okay. Well, she. Well, I'm I'm hearing it, so I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They'll hear it. She rarely barks. So I'm not sure what what she's she's barking about. But anyway, I'm sure yeah. she's got a good dog reason. Yeah, probably. Or there's a dog walking by or something like that. Um, <laughs> but so, anyways, for this this owl from Aldi. So we went to Aldi in Ar- Arlington because we went we went to of all places Grapevine Lake today and. Mm-hmm. Um, the we you know the closest Aldi on the way home was in was in Arlington and I don't know if this is typical of Aldi or if it was this Aldi in particular but like no offense to Arlington but it's kind of a shithole <laughs> and I, I don't know like the the granted the, it was the shopping center that we were in was not great and there could be there could be really nice parts but this Aldi was not not in really good condition it was kind of falling apart but they did have the the wine there it's kind of off in a weird section of the store that was. Difficult to locate, so I had to ask somebody. But um, mm-hmm. it was like on the back side, across from the freezer section. But it was like next to it was in between like bread and um, other type of bread items. But there was like it was like bagels on one side, then wine, then bread on the other side. It was weird. Well, what else is gonna suck up all the booze? Yeah, I guess I I don't know. It was, it was very strange, but. The wine itself, uh, I poured a glass. I'm actually, this week I'm going to be drinking it out of a Smart Mouth uh, pint glass because I couldn't find my normal wine glass. I think it's in the washing machine. But it's, you know, it's it's very, it's a very purple color. Uh-huh. It has, you know, it smells kind of like, uh, it does have that kind of French bready yeasty smell, at least uh-huh. the bottle that I have. Not bad. To kind of give a little bit of information about the wine, um, I don't know if the listeners are familiar with this or not. Uh, there is a company called Barefoot. Um, uh-huh. It's a very, very popular kind of low-end wine, um, and they make they make a lot of varietals. This particular wine, the Winking Owl, which is the brand for Aldi, is the same uh, winery and vineyards that makes Barefoot. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, so it's uh, um, the the winery is called E and J Gallo. Um, uh-huh. it, it's a winery. It's out of Madeira. Modesto, California. They are actually the largest exporter of wine in the United States. Or I'm sorry, the largest exporter of California wine in the United States, which leads me to believe that they're also the largest exporter of wine because California is the top wine producing state. But I could be mistaken on that. Um, it was fa- the, this particular winery was founded in 1933 and is again the largest exporter of California wines. Um, they have a lot of popular brands that they do. Um, and barefoot in particular, but they're, they, they, do, this is one of the things that they kind of do is they make the wine and sell it f- and, and kind of label it and brand it for other people. So it's called white, it's called white labeling, white labeling. Yeah. So they they have a bunch of their own, which are just, uh, you know, Gallo wines or whatever, Gallo family vineyard estate wines, Gallo, this Gallo, this, they also have like one of the ones I think we might've had is, um, uh, William Hill Estate. Do you recall that one? I believe so. Yeah, I think we did that one. I think that was a cab as well. And I, I'm not 100% sure, and I didn't look through all of the um, episodes, but I believe that that one was... Uh, from Lidl. Um, I think so, yeah. So that's interesting because we've talked about this before that there's, you know, Lidl and um, and Aldi have a, a history in Germany. Uh-huh. And I think you've actually told me this too and I came across it when I was just reading stuff that the largest seller of wine in Germany is Aldi. Yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot. But they have, you know, maybe 31 or so wines that I think maybe 35 wines total that are other brands that they do besides, mm-hmm. besides barefoot. They don't, that, that's not included in the thing because 
Barefoot is one, like I like I said earlier, one of the fastest growing wine companies and also one of the largest wine companies. Yeah, for quite a few years, Barefoot was my mom's brand. Okay, interesting. And and then like recently, she started drinking the Walmart brand wine. Okay. And then she found the Audi stuff, and that's how yeah. I came across the Waking Owl because like, the first one I had was the Shiraz. Okay. So that's interesting. So I did a little research in addition on the Waking Owl brand, not just the cab that we're drinking, and the Shiraz is actually one of the ones that they say is the best. Um, it's very good. Yeah. So and the explanation for why is um, because it tastes the way a Shiraz should taste. Nothing extra. It's not. There's nothing special about it. Um, and uh, the, so I'll give you the quote. This is from uh, it's from it's called the Indian, Indianapolis Stars from like their wine review or whatever. And it's him talking about the Shiraz. Is he says a fan of Shiraz? I'm a fan of of the Shiraz because it tastes like it should with a good fruit flavor that reminds me of blackberry and some smokiness that's reminiscent reminiscent of South Africa or South African Pinotage, um, which we've had a Pinotage on the show before. So if you guys are interested in what we said about that, you can look back a couple episodes, um, and we'll have reviewed that. Um, he says, I'll buy it again. You can do a lot worse for $10 more than triple the cost of this. So again, did we talk about price point yet, Mason? Uh, we haven't talked about the price point on this, but we may have mentioned it last week. I'm okay. not totally sure. So this for me was $2 and 80 cents yeah. for a bottle. Um, and I think that's due to taxes. How much was it in Virginia? Two ninety nine. Two ninety nine. Okay, so there, there's a little bit of a tax difference, um, but mm. uh, roughly three dollars. And I haven't sipped it yet. Have you had a sip yet? Well, I drank the majority of the bottle last week. Okay. And then my wife um, consumed some of it. She liked it. And then um, so I've got the last bit of it this mm-hmm. week. So while you taste it, I'm going to talk about the bottle itself. So okay. very clean label. Um, so, you know, Winking Owl, and it's got a cute little owl that's winking. What's cool about the Winking Owl brand is each owl is a different color, so it makes it easier to denote which wine you've got or the, the wines being different. Um, so mine's 12% alcohol by volume, so we know that can be 11 to 13. Um, so on the back, it's kind of nice because it you know, tells you the origin, California, USA, taste, semi-dry, style, medium-bodied, notes, subtle flavors of blackberry, plum, toasted oak, and hint of vanilla. Get the blackberry, kind of a fruit level but then it tells you food pasta pork beef and steak and then it gives you a temp best served at room temperature so it gives you like it gives you some quick tasting notes in like temperature so it, it makes it a really easy entrance to wine so you don't just pick up a bottle and go well, what do i do with this what what can i serve this with? what am i expecting yeah. out of it yeah so, so my initial thoughts on this is I can definitely see this being an easy wine because it is, it's very drinkable. Um, mm-hmm. not very heavy, not very heavy, not very full bodied. There is almost no tannins on this, which is really unusual mm-hmm. for a uh, cab. Mm-hmm. And it's actually something I really like about cab. So this is probably not going to be my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, a lot of fruit flavor. It's a little bit sweeter, I think, than, um, most cabs. It, and it may be that the tannins are gone, so I notice the sweetness more. Um, uh-huh. it does have a little bit of the alcohol eff- effervescence or whatever, but there's nothing gross about it or anything. It's, it doesn't taste strange. It just, just tastes like kind of drinkable red wine. It's not, not amazing or special, but it's, uh, for three bucks. I mean, if you're not really that in, into cabs or whatever, and you kind of want maybe a small introduction, something that's a little less tannic, you're you're used to a sweeter wine. I could see this being a lot more palatable 
outside on a hot day than some of the cabs that I normally drink. You know, dare mm-hmm. I say freak show? Um, again, because we bring it up every episode. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> nearly. Uh, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of like, it's not complex. It doesn't really have a lot of structure or anything like that. Um, but it's good. I, I, I like it. It, It's a little bit on the fruit juicy side, but if you like that kind of wine, then this is for three bucks, you can, you know, go for it. Or if you just kind of want to have something around. Oh, so this is one of the things that are like, if you need a red wine flavor and you need to cook with it, this would do very well unless you specifically need the tannin, heavy Mm -hmm. tannins. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're having a party and you're serving wine to your guests, you wouldn't be disserved or look like a cheap host having this out. The bottle doesn't scream dirt cheap. Right. Yeah. And it is dirt cheap, but it's serviceable. Yeah. And especially, you know, if you've had one or two drinks, I don't think you would like, I mean, unless you're like, a, you know, four hours into a wine snob festival. Right. Like, you know, if you've had a drink or two, you know, it's your third drink in an hour, right. hour and a half, you're really not going to be like, oh, man, I've been ripped off. Like, it's a, a very serviceable wine. Right. So I, it's one of those ones that, especially, like, if you're worried about getting into wine, like, if you like this, I can understand why you might not like further salves mm-hmm. or, you know, cabs mm-hmm. because of the tannicness and some of the acidity, but it gives you a really good introduction, I think, to... yeah. Like a little higher end wine, even though it's not super high end. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't taste like rubbing alcohol. It doesn't take taste off. It's like it, it, you can tell they did a really hard balancing on it yeah. to try to make sure the flavor is consistent. Right. And it's, you know, like I said, it's if you if you're experienced with wine, um, I don't I don't really consider myself that experienced with wine. I can tell that it's not. Um, a regular cab. Like if somebody uh-huh. g- if somebody gave this to me and was like, "What kind of wine is this?" I I don't think I would pick cab. I might pick merlot. But um, you know, I I could pick a merlot or a pinot. Yeah, yeah, almost. exactly. Because it's it's a little bit different than you know. It doesn't have exa- it's it's the tannins is what it is. Is is cabs are so tannic usually or very tannic on the high end of tannic or whatever, and then they also a lot of times have kind of a spiciness to them, uh-huh. and which this doesn't have. This is very fruity. So oh, yeah. I, I think that um, definitely worth three bucks. Uh, and honestly, like you know, it's drinkable. I, I I would drink it, and I and I like more of those, and I like Pinot Noirs. So they are it's it's good for what it is. And um, so I'm not going to say anything negative really about it. I'm just going to give it two thumbs up and uh, keep drinking while we talk about other stuff. I guess. Yeah. So real quick, I would say sure. you know I would pay up to seven or eight bucks for this. You know, like. And not be disappointed. Mm-hmm. But and that's the thing is we've had some of the Pinos, or not Pinos, but um, cabs where it's like you got them at a little bit of a discount and it's like, eh, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't spend that much money on it. This one's right. pretty good. So while you prep your show notes for the next stuff, um, I'll give people where they can reach out to us. Sure. Uh, Twitter, uh, Tasting Anarchy on Twitter, dot, you know, on Twitter, uh, tastinganarchy.com itself. So we're going to have um, show notes and hopefully links to the articles that we talk about and, you know, do better on giving more of the content we're actually talking about. Um, I'm working on a review series of the Winking Owl wines, kind of trying to work my way through it. That's one of the reasons I wanted Jacob to try this cab. Um, cause I have their Grigio next, which I hear is egregious. <laughs> I'm so funny. Yeah. Um, but you know, so we're, we're trying to work better on series and things like that. Um, 
you know, if Jacob pulls off his Liberty topless idea, and we won't explain that, you have to go back to the previous episode and yep. listen to figure out what that means. Um, we'll have links to that. Um, and just other general things, you know, we may have some articles where they don't have anything to do with wine specifically, you know, might have some articles about Walter Block or other things like that, where it's just interesting stuff that yeah. they've been up to. Um, and then you can reach out to us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. So, um, you want to email us. We are always up for that. Yep. Um, Jacob checks most of the social on the phone or yep. the email. So if you specifically want to communicate with me, you need to kind of direct him in that, but, um, we're always around. Yep. In some way. <laughs> yep. And I, I mean, I've got, I've got the email hooked up on my phone. So I usually, nice. I usually check it a couple times a day. Um, we don't really get very much, but occasionally, um, something interesting pops up or something somebody talks about pops up and, you know, we'll take a look at it. Um, so let me get into just kind of my fun story, just cause I think it's interesting. Uh-huh. Um, before we get into the heavy liberty type stuff, um, this is a story that is, it's out of uh, some local news station. It's, it's channel 21, w, or KWBE, 1450 AM, 94.7 FM, you know? So it's just one of those kind of like local ones. Um, but in Dallas, right? No, no, no. This is from like, oh, okay. I don't know where it's from. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, but it's, and it's actually, it's about Norway, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's an it's an ABC News affiliate, and this is uh, and they're and I think they're aggregating it from ABC News because it doesn't have the author of the article. It just says ABC News. Um, so what's interesting about it is I'll read the headline just, and this I think will be interesting to you, and that's more or less the reason I picked it. Um, it's uh, what uh, what's believed to be the most northerly vineyard in the world is up for sale, and so this vineyard is in Norway. Um, it is roughly on the same. Uh, so it's it's on the uh, 59 degrees north. So that's roughly the same as Alaska. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's very far north. They have a really interesting microclimate there, though, because of the Gulf Stream, and mm-hmm. it it does get cold there. Uh, but they have a slightly longer growing season, and it is slightly less harsh winters, and that allows them to have a small. Um, I think it's. I think they said it was a 15 acre vineyard. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not large. Uh, well, it's about standard for European size vineyards. American vineyards are usually 30 or more, um, or New World vineyards as they call them, so Australian and American. Um, and I guess probably South Africans roughly that size too, but, uh, European vineyards are usually between 8 and, um, 20, so they're usually a little bit smaller. So this vineyard is being sold, um, for 805,000 American dollars. Uh, it's a, you know, small vineyard, but they've, they've produced some world class, like, uh, award winning wines. Um, they've produced about 1500 liters of, uh, various reds, rosés, and, uh, white fruit, um, wines. And I guess the two people who started it, they bought it and got it started. Their first vintage was 2009, so I guess they got it started in around 2008. And, um, they're just getting older and their family was not interested in taking it over. And so, oh, wow. yeah, so they are selling it because they're, you know, they're in their, they're getting into their later sixties and they don't, they just, they just don't, they can't do it without help. And mm-hmm. my guess would be the onerous Norwegian labor laws make it so that it's difficult to hire help. 
And does Norway have they business have, restrictions? They don't have business uh, restrictions, but they do have uh, labor, like minimum wage and um, uh, very, very high taxes. So if you want uh-huh. to, if you want somebody to work for you, obviously you're going to have to pay them a little bit more to make up for the tax, the taxes being taken. Gotcha. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that that's the case. They just the way the quote is. They said uh, this vineyard this vineyard project was a dream come true. Um, said I'm not going to be able to pronounce her name, but it's H V A T T U M is her name. Who, yeah, who like her husband is 62. So they're in their early 60s, I guess. Uh, but mm-hmm. but both are aging, and we no longer can do this by ourselves. Unfortunately, none of our six children are interested, and they all have urban jobs. I guess, so what you're saying is you want to move to Norway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I don't know how how cold it gets here, but they have like one picture of them in the vineyard, and it looks gorgeous. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like a really awesome place to live. But and a very yeah. sim- simple vineyard, like seems like a simple way to live. But they've they've won a few awards, so I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing. You've been to Finland briefly, and mm-hmm. uh, just kind of a cool, just a cool story. I didn't even know that they could grow wine grapes that far north. Yeah, they're 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 working on having uh, more hearty grapes out of like georgia and stuff like that these places yeah. that get well, they, very cold one of the ones that they do there is a russian varietal called uh i'm not gonna be able to pronounce it either it's hazansky hazansky sladiki so it's h-a-s-a-n-s-k-y space s-l-a-d-k-i um and so that's a variety that is grown in russia which is a very harsh climate um, in many, in much of it, uh, much of Russia, I guess now that Crimea is part of it, there's that small area that's not harsh, but, uh, overall it's a cold place. And, um, but they also do, uh, some from Germany, um, a varietal called Solaris, which I've never heard of. Um, and, uh, Rondo from France. Have you ever heard of that varietal? I think I have in passing, okay. but I don't know like so, for sure. Yeah. So they actually have this this small 15-acre vineyard actually has 20 varietals. Those are just the ones that they kind of pointed out. Although it's it's so funny, though, because this article in a couple of places are like, uh, these conditions are very harsh, even with global warming. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, why would you throw that in there? <laughs> well, I can understand. Like, if you're, if you're trying to get somebody to come who isn't maybe Norwegian, you know, like... Ooh, like you know, you're kind of like playing it up, like yeah, it's cold here. Yeah, like even with global warming, like you know, you and I think it's like you know, it, not that we don't necessarily believe in yeah. like global climate change, right? But like the like world menace right. stance, I think these people are more like you know, yeah, don't move here and think you're going to be like the south of right. France, right? Because I mean, it is, it does have a unique microclimate which is is different than most of norway according to the article but it's still very cold so Uh if i think that if people are going to go buy a almost a million dollar um uh, vineyard slash restaurant slash winery slash hotel or whatever it is because it's got it's got uh actually in the middle of the vineyard you can you can rent out gigantic um wine barrels that have been refurbished into rooms which sounds really cool. Um, I mean, it just sounds like a cool, like a really cool vineyard. I, I, not that I want to own it because I don't want to live in Norway. I just want to go there and see it because the article makes it sound really neat. 
Well, yeah, uh, so it sounds like a fun project. Yeah. Um, and so maybe when I own a vineyard, um, which have I told everybody my uh, vineyard name yet? I don't think so. I think I told, I think I told you maybe over text. It's going to be called. I don't believe you told me that. Okay. I might cut it out because Victoria has given me the, the don't, um, don't tell people. So hold on. Let me write, <laughs> I'm going to write down the time and I'll cut it out. But that's, that's, I would like to maybe have a vineyard at some point and, uh, and that would be what I'd call it. But I'm thinking more like in Oregon. Uh-huh. So somewhere where it's a little bit closer to the climate that I like. And although Oregon's very leftist also, but I, I love the Oregon. And actually, you and I have talked about this a little bit too, is like, you know, if you could pick one place to live or whatever, I would pick Northern California. But, uh-huh. you know, given what's going on in California, uh, I think it would be more palatable to live in Oregon because Oregon is very similar to Northern California, but, and, and is still very liberal, but in rural Oregon, it's a lot more libertarians. It's just a lot of people who mm-hmm. just kind of want to be left alone. And they do actually have very good turnout for libertarian candidates in Oregon. Um, cause mm-hmm. the, it, particularly in Eastern Oregon, they do. Cause it's just a lot of like farmers and ranchers and they're just like, look, the police are not here to help us. They, they don't, it takes too long to get out here. We take care of our own problems. Uh, the government doesn't really help us that much. We, we take care of our own stuff. And it's, it's more like Portland, Eugene. You know, those types of places that and make coastal. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more coastal, Central Valley of Oregon type areas. Um, but just like reading about these two, like gigantic wine barrels that are really rooms or whatever, it makes me want to like go like, let's ferment, uh, one round in these humongous barrels and then turn the humongous barrels into like micro homes to rent out for like yuppies who want to come and stay on a vineyard. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So that's my my fun my fun article for today. Uh, do you got any, uh, anything interesting you want to share before we get into homestead stuff? Uh, so I'll talk just slightly about it, okay? Because um, we we need to do a little more research on it. Um, so you know, there's the Republic of Ireland, right? And then there's Northern Ireland, which is its own, and I'm using air quotes, country. Mm-hmm. Part of the United Kingdom, so like the European, the not the European, but the UK Parliament does have some force there. You know, it, it's very confusing. But apparently, you know, is it like 590 something days at this point where they haven't had a government come together? Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, they still have bureaucrats and everything like that, but they don't have like a cabinet, right? You got like a prime minister yeah. and all that. Well, and weird. I know, like, just to kind of, I'm sure that most of our audience are Americans. Um, that if uh, uh, just it's the way that European governments form is different than the way that ours do. So if a government doesn't form in Europe, correct me if I'm wrong, Mason, because you might know more about this than I do. The way that I understand it is that they, in order to basically pass legislation and act and put legislation up for a vote, um, they have to form a government to do it. And in order to form a government, you have to have either plurality or a majority of the representatives have to get together and agree to what the government is going to be and basically what the agenda of the government is going to be. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 how I understand it because I know that so what was the article it said 600 days for Ireland? Yeah, it was like 583 or something, but it was like the longest running currently. Yeah, cuz I know that Spain had had an issue for 200 days or 300 days or something like that where they they were not able to form a government and this is kind of when Crimea or not Crimea um what's that part of Spain that was going to split off um Catalans yeah uh Catalonia yeah um when they were splitting off uh Spain had not formed a government for over 100 days mm-hmm. and um part of it I think was the Catalonian Catalonia is a pretty populous place they had some people elected to the national parliament that were not cooperating and um and good for them 
Uh, on the other hand, you know, from what we understand from, I think his name's David. Um, he was Spanish, the Catalonian agitators are communists. So that, you know, on that, on that side, it's not great. But I, th- I think as what a lot of libertarians would agree with this and some wouldn't, um, any secession is good secession. So, um, the smaller you make countries and the more you normalize secession, the closer to individual secession you'll get to. And so mm-hmm. if, if Catalonia secedes and they become, you know, a communist despot or whatever, despot country, whatever the correct term would be, uh, it's much easier for Catalonians to move out of Catalonia into Spain than it would be for Catalonia in Spain to move out of Catalonia into like, Italy. Uh-huh. I mean, they could, I guess they theoretically they could just walk into France, um, but the smaller you make it, the better the situation. And 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 really, actually, in Europe, we have a couple of examples of very small countries um, that do tend to have quite a bit of freedom, particularly economic freedom. Uh, Monaco, I don't really know how much personal liberty they have, but I know that economically they are relatively free. Um, Liechtenstein is very free, and their king is very libertarian-esque. He's not... Uh, Prince Regent. Yeah, pre- Prince Regent. Yeah, so he's... Uh, and Sweden, the the cantons in, in... Or not in Sweden, Switzerland. The cantons in Switzerland uh, have the right of secession, and they've never practiced it, but... They're more or less autonomous, so people think of Switzerland as one country, but it's really a bunch of little countries because the cantons actually do the majority of legislating. So from Mm -hmm. canton to canton, it's different. Cantons are more or less city-states. They're very small. Um, Yeah, they're they're more like counties. Yeah, counties, yeah, I guess would be be closer to it. Yeah. Um, But then you have have some, though, that are not great, like um, Belgian. The Belgians are pretty uh, autocratic and um, not really a super free place, but the Belgians are basically French, so you could just kind of, although they probably wouldn't want to be called French, but uh, they can just kind of walk a, walk across the border and they're in France and they could probably get along pretty well. Well, there's those two sections of Belgium, Belgium so, right. and then there's subsections of those, so I wouldn't say they're basically French. I would say they're very odd. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's a, you know, the... Like, one of the things I think people need to watch out for when they're reading articles, like, saying, like, oh, they haven't formed a government. Uh And, like, the government, like, this is the the weird thing about, like, the European governments, per se. Like, you have this sitting body who comes together and forms a coalition and kind of directs policy and things like that. But then you have the bureaucrats who are running around in the background the entire time. Right. And, And it doesn't necessarily equate to what the federal level government is doing compared to, you know, just the federal, the federal legislature is doing compared to the federal quasi executive. Whereas like in the United States, like there's always a sitting Congress, even, you know, like, and there's a government and there's always a party in charge. Like we've never had a situation where there isn't like, I mean, there's questions on who's going to be the speaker or something like that, but there's all these weird backups and, and things like that. Right. It's very different kind of looking at it from the U.S. way because, like, there's a policy of the United States government that's enacted in, like, I guess the Europeans would think we're kind of weird because we have such a strong executive with mm-hmm. such a strong legislator. Right. You know, it's yeah. like that kind of, like, that weird balance where it's like, oh, the president's just sitting up there, you know, running the tariff laws based on the rules Congress passed. Right. Well, and I think that this would this will be really interesting. And well, let's briefly talk about this because I don't think we mentioned it last time. Is um, you know Gary jo- maybe we did Gary Johnson is running for Senate in uh, New Mexico, 
and he's mm-hmm. he's doing fairly well uh, in the polls. I think he's coming in second to the Democrat at the moment. Um, uh, and uh, one of the things I think is going to be interesting about this, if he wins, is that right now in America, uh, for anybody who's not here or doesn't pay attention to you know politics the way that you and I do, is the uh, Senate is very very close to a balance, I guess. So uh, there's a very small majority of Republicans. And Uh this may become an even smaller majority of Republicans or become a small majority of Democrats on the next election. Uh The next election, or the midterms, the the midterm cycle. If Gary Johnson gets elected as a libertarian, he will have a disproportionate amount of power in that situation because he... well, it depends on how he decides to caucus, I guess. Although I, I don't know if the Senate caucuses the same way as the House does, but um, he's basically the swing vote, or he he would he would be a very good swing vote. Now he did come from the Republicans, but he has a lot of, I guess, Democrat type positions. He's not the type of libertarian that you and I are. He's more, you know, thinking of libertarianism as a as a big tent, which I'm trying to think more of it as a big tent to kind of go along to get along or whatever so that we can actually make a difference. Um, Gary Johnson is not a Rothbardian or anything like that. He is more or less an instinctual libertarian. He's a businessman who understands the uh, damage that the government can do to businesses. Um, He doesn't always think all of his positions through, you know, the Nazi cake issue or like um, what is Aleppo moment, like those kind of gaffes or whatever. But... Well, I'll quibble on the Aleppo moment, but we'll, we'll leave yeah. that aside. Well, it, whatever, whatever the deal is with that, it doesn't matter. I mean, he, I think I, as much as I like to rag on him or whatever, I do like him a lot, and I think he's a mm-hmm. a good and he's an electable. He's a good electable, liberty minded individual. He's I would say he's probably on the he would be way better than Trump as president. He'd be way 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 better than. Hillary and Trump as president. Um, mm-hmm. He, I would say, is probably along the lines of a Thomas Massey in um, Congress, or maybe a little bit more radical than Rand Paul in the Senate. So I think he would be a good thing. But we may end up getting to a point not where the government can't form, but where Congress has a very difficult time passing legislation because you've got—I don't know that he has a spine for this—but you've got Gary Johnson and you've got like Rand Paul types who will refuse to budge on principled issues. Well, so we've got a couple of interesting things coming up. So um, I think, you know, so if you have Johnson as a libertarian, you have Sanders as an independent. Uh-huh. And depending on how spry the old chicken is feeling, um, he may be gearing up for another presidential run. So he may be more obstructionist, especially if the, the Dems don't win the Senate, which I right. really don't think they're going to. No, I don't think so either. I, th- I yeah. think I think it'll be a push at the at best. But yeah. I, th- I think the Republicans will actually take more seats. But I could be completely wrong. Well, I think the the Senate is Senate's weird. Yeah, because like Kane's running in Virginia again. Right. But like I'm not hearing anything about it. Yeah, you know, which is <laughs> yeah. Like Tim Kane is terrible. Yeah. Like I, I don't understand how people are still trying to run him, but whatever. But so I think it'll be a really interesting situation because one of the things that. I don't think Gary Johnson doesn't lacks personal character. Mm-hmm. I think he may lack legislative character. Where like I just don't see him. I see him voting no, which right. is fine. But I don't see him being like Rand Paul and getting like beat up by his neighbor and then right. like getting up in front of the and then trying to like you know from his hospital bed like you know like Rand Paul is the type of guy who'd be like 
wheel me in there. I'm going to filibuster. Right. Yeah. Like I, I see Johnson standing up and going, and now here's my 52 minute filibuster. Right. You get the point. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to read the phone book. I'm not just going to sing the star spangled banner repeatedly. You know, yeah. he's not going to be somebody like Thomas Massey. If Thomas Massey was a Senator where, Massey's like, no, this is unconscionable. Rand, you take the first 10 hours. I'll take the second 10 hours. You right. come back. Yeah. Like, yeah. we will, you know, like that pure, destructive um, filibuster moment. Right. So, like, that's where I think, like, I think he would register his disapproval, but, it, it, you know. I, yeah, I, people... I'm, not, I'm not sure what he would do. It's, you know, when I, re- when I look at. He's let me down before, but like at the same time, he he's demonstrated like he was governor, and as governor, he was actually a very good governor. He's uh-huh. now you're, you may be right on the on the filibuster thing is that he won't sit there, but I also don't think he would ever vote against his principles. the The only thing that I would be a little bit worried about him not voting his principles is I don't know exactly what his principles are because he's not a a philosophical libertarian. He's more of a practical libertarian. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's I mean, kind of like, what, yeah, I'm not sure about like, that. I don't have any, I don't have any worry that he's not going to, like, you know, marijuana reform comes up. Sure. We know how he's going to vote. Additional wars where the United States isn't directly attacked. Mm-hmm. We kind of know how he's going to vote. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, pretty positive he's not going to vote for additional war. Yeah. Unless, you know, it's aliens. Right. Or something. Right. You know, like he, he's not going to vote for a, a war that makes no practical sense and the U.S. isn't attacked. Like right. he, he's not going to vote for that. He's not going to probably he probably wouldn't vote for the defense authorization bills because yeah. of just the fiscal cost. But you're right where it's like that fine line, you know, like the cake situation. Right. You know, I know a lot of people who are like, blah, 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 like, you know. To, you know, if he'd sell them the, you know, a pre-made cake, well, you know, and it's like, no, it's his friggin' property. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to serve anyone who comes in the door. Like, right. No shirts, no shoes, no service. Yeah, like, exactly. It, you know, it's your right to discriminate. Right. I am and why, yeah, like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you just put, like, the thing is, my, my issue with it is that it's the, is the double standard in our society or whatever is... Like, I don't even need to qualify this or whatever. Like, if you put a sign up that said no Irish or no blacks, people would be outraged. Actually, if, if it was said no Irish, I don't think anybody would care. But if it said no blacks, people would be pissed off. If it said no Nazis, nobody would care. And they, and you'd probably be like supported by, you know, young hipster Antifa people if they had any money. Um, which I don't know. They might, they might have their parents' money or something. But, uh, you know, they, they'd be like, oh, right, a cake shop that says no Nazis? Yeah, or whatever. But if you were like, no gays or no blacks, one of the, you know, the liberal pet groups or whatever, uh, you'd be picketed. And honestly, you should be picketed. And that's the free market at work. What shouldn't be going on is the picketers becoming violent or the government coming in being violent and forcing you to sell a cake to somebody you don't want to sell a cake to. Yeah, and that's the, and that's what is, is so frustrating about it to me is, this is Tom Wood's point, and I think it's the best point to point out is it's not relevant what you think he should do with his property is. Right. It's relevant as what he wants to do with his property that doesn't physically harm someone else. Right. So he doesn't want to sell it to somebody. And that that's the thing is, like, if this gay couple, like, if he was the lowest cost baker and these guys had been on really, really hard time and were just finally being able to get married, and this is the only cake place they could afford a custom cake for, I would feel sorry that they were in that situation. And I would want to donate in such a way that to help them, 
You know, it's right. like, okay, you can't afford a better cake. Well, let's see what we can do to try to get you some money. They shopped for a bakery to bring this against. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, you know, and they admit to that. It's not like they, you know, were poor and saying, this is the only place we could afford a cake from, and our hopes were dashed, and now we think we're, you know, we need to try to force him to do something, which I don't agree with, but, like, I can understand that hurt and disappointment, but, like, that's when you get vocal about it. Like, all those Reddit pictures of people who are servers and somebody's like, don't tip the blacks or something like that right. on the receipt. And you're like, F that guy. And, you know, people try to crowdfund for the person. And then sometimes it turns out that person made it up. And other times, it, you know, it just goes away. But, like, they went looking for somebody to violate a non-rule. Right. Like, it, it's so, it's it, it's like this whole Trump thing. Like, and this is one of the things that, like, the the Democrats and the liberals who don't seem to understand, like, they have these problems with, like, jailhouse informants uh-huh. because you know jacob you're gonna go to jail with a bunch of rapists and murderers and they're gonna use you like a you know right. whatever gross and offensive thing you can think of yeah and this is a cop talking to you but if you, if you don't turn on mason and then you're like so you you think you're going to die or be sexually assaulted in prison mm-hmm. if you don't turn on me and then they go and you know and then you make up something right and like there's there's a thing that you haven't seen because you don't watch true crime but mm. I, mean, I don't blame you but like making a murder on the netflix mm. this guy who's he's not the brightest guy in the shed yeah gets accused of some crimes gets vindicated gets a is about to get a huge reward from like the government basically saying yeah the government railroaded you and then he gets accused of another murder yeah and then his mentally disabled in some capacity nephew who's told if you just tell us that your uncle did the murder you're going home so he tells them what they want to hear right and he's got 19 different versions and this guy's in jail like these both these guys are in jail right and and, you know they straight up lie to this kid who's mentally disabled and i believe was underage at the time you know it's just like this like they went looking for trouble to put on this guy well i mean yeah and also just kind of to plug our uh, friend john odermatt at lions liberty for felony friday um he goes over this with, I can't remember who it was, but and it was a long time ago, but uh, it was a guy who does work on false confessions. Mm-hmm. It's astonishing the amount of false confessions that happen. And the guy kind of goes through, why would you make this confession or whatever? And a lot of time it's because they are maybe not retarded, but borderline, like uh, maybe like a low 70s IQ or high 60s IQ. So they're not, they're, they are functional and they could probably hold like basic jobs. And stuff like that, but they're not the the sharpest knife in the drawer, or the you know whatever. Yeah, and that's the thing is like even even people who are intelligent. Yeah, well, a lot after of times, fifteen yes. hours, right, with people who are trained yeah. to get an answer from you, right, and who've already decided. So yeah, and and that's the thing is this this guy rightly points out there are cops who get false confessions and think they got the right answer. Yeah, and they didn't go in with prejudice. Right. Well, they and just, the, yeah, they didn't. And, bad tactics. Yeah, and the, this guy who was on the John on John Odermatt's show, it, he kind of goes over this as well. That the entire incentive system for cops who do the interrogation is to get a confession because mm-hmm. if you get confessions, you get promoted, and it's yeah. not it's not to find justice or to settle a crime or whatever. The the well, it is to settle the crime, but it doesn't necessarily mean if the crime is overturned or not later on. It just means that uh, it's just that you've actually made progress, and that's kind of how you progress. It's not ju- seeking justice or whatever is not exactly the incentive system. The incentive yeah. system is is closing the book, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. So the whole point of this was that people are like, you know, oh, 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 did you see Trump's allies are turning on? Mm-hmm. 
yeah, the full weight of the federal government comes against you. And they say, well, the only way you're not going to jail for a crime you committed, which a lot of times they did commit, in yeah. air quotes, a crime. Some of them are real crimes. Right. You know, some of them are damaging and theft and, and you know, um, basically stealing from, like, other people who aren't the government. Right. Is to turn on Trump. Yeah. And they turn on Trump, but if it was two black guys who did it, they'd be like, oh, no, that's suspect. Right. You know, they're, they're pulling them off on each other. It's like, yeah, they're doing the same thing. It's not just because you, you know, and these are for crimes they didn't commit during the campaign. Right. Or well, if they did commit during the campaign, it's not even friggin' related to Russia. Yeah, and, and I'd kind of go a step further on this, too, is that it's already kind of established that all these people are liars and sleazebags. So yeah. like, why would you not have believed them previously, but now you believe them? Exactly. Like, you only believe them when they say the things that you want to say, want them to say, but they're, they're, I mean, these are all people, you know, and, and Trump's kind of a liar and a sleazebag. Like, uh, he was a New York real estate guy for 50 years or whatever, and, like, of course he did bad stuff. I can't believe that they haven't found anything on him yet. It's, it's unbelievable. And I think Jason, either Jason was talking about this or, um, Jason Stapleton on, um, this Jason, Jason Stapleton program for those of you who know, um, or don't know. Uh, I think either him or Dave Smith was talking about this, that it was like, you're in one of the most heavily regulated, most corrupt cities on the planet, New York City, and you don't think that Trump's got skeletons in his closet? Of course he does. Bill Clinton had skeletons in his closet and he was from Arkansas. Yeah, I think that, I think what people fail to understand about, you know, the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to weave this needle through, like, uh, um, do you remember the game Flappy Birds? Mm -hmm. So, it's a game of flappy birds because, like, Trump holds the cards on these terrible things. So, right. like, I don't, I don't necessarily think Trump is, like, I don't think he's a great guy. And yeah, I think he probably broke some laws and things like that. But I don't think he's like a rapist, like Bill Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these these terrible things. But I think he knows so much. Right. So what they're trying to do is they're basically going like, if we can nail him on these made up nonsense things and oust him in some way, but not expose these other things about him. Because if he, we expose point one, he'll expose these 19 people. Right. And the crimes they committed are just as bad as what we're trying to put on him. Right. So he'll destroy them and that'll destroy our friends. But if we don't bring it up because the statute of limitations haven't run out on any of this, but we get them on something else. Right. We don't think he, He's going to burn this bridge because we're not trying to put him in jail. We're just trying to get him out of office. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's kind of the game that they're trying to pull at this point. And I, I think they've got something on Sessions at this point because I can't imagine Sessions thinks this Mueller thing has a point. Mm -hmm. Like, he, that guy has been around the mulberry bush so many times. Mm -hmm. Like, he has to know all of the skeletons of everyone else, even if he doesn't have his own. Right. Or, you know, like, oh, mistreated my gay son or something, you know. He's, he's probably got this skeleton that's like, I had a child out of wedlock. Everyone's right. like, yeah, no one cares, man. Yeah, you didn't like, rape the woman. My shame. My shame. It would be. It would be like his like bizarre, his weird, bizarre, backward beliefs. Yeah. Which, you know, if he wants to hold those, great. I just don't want him to be in office to enforce that on other people. Yeah. Because I, I probably like, actually hold a lot of those backward beliefs. <laughs> and, and that's what I was going to say. Is like I think that's one of those, like, and Tom Woods had somebody talking about this, and I can't remember who it was, but it's like we're censoring ourselves. Yeah. Like by saying backwards beliefs. Right. And those were all common beliefs for 900 years. Yeah, that's true. And then all of a sudden, you know, the far left liberals came in and said, oh, no, political correctness, which right. is a Soviet gulag term. 
Yeah. Like, ha- have you had a chance to watch Death of Death of Stalin yet? No, not yet. I, I want to watch it with Victoria. You are going to friggin' love it. Okay. It is so preposterous. Is it? Is it on and Netflix yet? I saw it on the airplane. Oh, okay. It is so absolutely preposterous and amazing. And, it, and but it's like, you know, the, these people are like, oh, you know, blah blah blah. There's more government. It's like we've seen what more government does. Like, how do you guys not get this? Right. Like, ultimate government, bad. Little government, maybe not great. Like. You know, depending on how it's measured out, but like, you know, you can't go from ultimate government to no government and then expect everything to go okay because the people who had the guns were the government. Right. Like, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it's a, uh, I guess it's a, it's a, a tricky situation. You know, I, I would like, mm-hmm. to, I'd like to push for anarchy. We actually, Victoria and I were watching a debate between, um, you know, Lauren, Lauren Sutherland. I don't. Uh, she's like, uh, kind of like an alt right kind of, I don't know if she's alt-right. She's just, she's like a right-wing kind of anti-immigration chick, but mm-hmm. also kind of free markety. She, she goes, she actually is on tour or was on tour last month with, uh, Stefan Molyneux, who, oh, okay, uh, that who girl. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like blonde. She did. Oh, I know. I, yeah, I've listened to some interview with her. Yeah. So she did, she had a, uh, debate with, um, I'm blanking on his name, but he's a pretty famous, uh, anarchist. Um, I'm going to look it up real quick. And I'll cut out the dead, the dead air or whatever. Uh, okay. Hang on. Larkin Rose. I kept forgetting. I forgot, forgot his name. So Larkin Rose is like, I wouldn't say he's the founder of agorism. I think that's Konkin, but, uh, Larkin Rose is pretty big in the voluntarist, uh, kind of the voluntarist, um, so the, the thing that kind of bothered me about this debate, Victoria and I watched it together, and, is that Larkin Rose is pro open borders, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Lawrence Sutherland wants the borders closed and like highly regulated immigration, right? And so the way that this, this debate, it was at Anarcho Palooza in, uh, Mexico or Anarcho Poloco or wh- whatever it's called, um, in New Mexico or in, in, not in New Mexico, in Mexico. Uh, so they had this debate there and the way it was billed was like open borders versus closed borders. And those are the options. Whereas I think that there are much more complicated and nuanced approaches to borders in the anarchist community. And I guess we mm-hmm. won't, we won't really get into that, but it was like Larkin Rose was kind of like the borders, an invisible line on the map. Get rid of it. It's government force. Okay. I kind of agree with that. And Lawrence Sutherland's position was, yeah, but there's a whole bunch of people in here whose property rights are going to be violated because all these people are coming in. That's also true. They are both true. And that's why the kind of Rothbardian, the the block Woodsian sort of approach to this is, I think, more correct, which is the government borders are invalid. But assuming that you have to purchase protection services from the government and you're not allowed to protect purchase protection services from somebody else, then you would expect that somebody would be protecting your property rights in the way that you want your property rights protected. Now, I don't know the people on the border, what they if they care about people coming across their land or not. They might, they might not. I don't know. But what I'm saying is those people would have to be asked, do you want people crossing your property from Mexico? And then when, if they said yes, then the person behind them would have to say, do you want people crossing your property from Mexico? And if they said no, then that's where the border would be. Mm-hmm. So it would be, it's a property rights issue. It's not an open borders versus closed borders. It's a, it's a, is it okay for a million people to come to this country and then use the services that I'm forced to pay for that are supposed to be for me and mine, but the government steals from me. And so instead of me getting at least a portion of that, I get none of it because there's a million people here from somewhere else that didn't pay for it. So, like, it, it's a complicated issue. What the answer is, I don't really know, other than I think mm-hmm. government being gone would probably be 
the best solution. But one of the things that they kind of bring up in this issue is that Larkin Rose sort of exists in a world of the world that you and I exist in a lot, which is the world of theory. And Lauren uh-huh. Sutherland kind of exists in the world of, you know, practicality. And this is actually going to be a good segue into our topic about homesteading. Um, yeah. So, uh, they, they, they live in these two different worlds. And I know that I get stuck in this a lot is this world of theory, which is kind of like, uh, you know, the non-aggression principle. Um, are there exceptions to the non-aggression principle? I don't think there are. I think that what people say is aggression is not really aggression. These are definitional things. This is, you know, this is all, this is all arguments in headspace. This is not really arguments in reality. Um, but, uh, I think this translates really well to our, our kind of our main topic or whatever for this episode. Although we'll, you know, we'll keep this to about 30 minutes. And that is like when I was doing some research on this. So la- last week, for those of you who didn't listen, I gave Mason an article because he and I, I, I wouldn't say a, like a strong disagreement exactly, but maybe, maybe this was one of our first disagreements about the homesteading principle. And, uh, um, it knows the lack of my understanding. It might have been that. I also think it might have been the maybe what I the position that I took on abandoning the property because that when I when I turned off the show when I turned the show off that was kind of what I took away from it was I don't think I had a very strong position on what constitutes abandoned property. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I did my focus on my research. So did you get a chance to read the Popsicle Sticks and Homesteading Land for Nature Preserved by Walter Block and uh, Michael Michael Ed, Edelstein? Edelstein? I did, okay. yeah. What do you think about that article? So I think Walter's concept is useful. One of the things that I don't, I don't, understand or functionally appreciate necessarily uh-huh. is the abandonment issue okay because i don't think the article is super enlightening to the baseline of the principle i think it's enlightening to the idea of how to counter philosophically someone's argument against uh, homesteading virgin land and, and right. that's the thing is like for me in I think Walter may have some better articles on this portion, and we okay. may need to continue the series after reading them. Okay, we might is, because I brought some yeah. other ones from Walter. <laughs> okay, good. Because right. one one of the things I think is there is no really no such thing as necessarily as virgin land. Yeah, well, because, well maybe. Yeah. Well, but yeah. So let me let me go through okay. this real quick because I, I, I have a point I want to sure. go back to um, about the mass migration thing. Right, but so. The government currently owns the land that isn't like all land is theoretically owned mm-hmm. at this point in the world, except for new islands or like these territories. I mean, like all land is owned in some capacity. So like one of the stage downs of a government would be possibly selling off the land, distributing back the the proceeds of the sale to someone else to, you know, pay off the government debt or something, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So you end up with this situation where like I believe in absolute ownership and I may not have a libertarian principle for it. And it may be, I think he needs to evolve a bit, but like just because I'm not actively using something, it's hard for me to think that I lose that thing through an idea of an abandonment. Right. I, I understand if I abandon my car on Jacob's freeway and it, I, you know, I put up a sign that says I'll be back in a day and a half with the tools to repair this and they're going to charge me rent in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Cool. But like, I can't leave it there for seven years and come back and be like, where did my car gone? Yeah. Cause I, it's on your property. Right. But if I have a piece of land somewhere that I'm holding for whatever reason, 
and I don't visit it for 10 years. I don't think about it for 10 years because I've got other things I'm dealing with. Right. And then, you know, I'm not putting out in the Jacobs articles of unabandonment land notification access right 67352. Yeah. That I thinking about possibly developing this small piece of Manhattan, I'm going to lose it. Like I, I and that's a like I may not understand the principle well enough, but like I buy a million acres of land, I choose to do nothing with it. I don't Walter Block homestead it or privacy reserves, you know, taking right. up small animals and putting them back on, saying they're my agents now to so homestead my land. Right. And then how much of that land do I have to do that on? And how frequently do I have to do that? Like, right. you know, so but so going back to what you were we were talking about before about borders, right? I think that your entire argument and the libertarian argument of that's where the border is is destroyed by an airplane, because then there is no border with directed flight. Right. So okay, crossing actually, the line. Yeah. Walter Block's done work on that too. <laughs> yeah. So, but I, I think this is the yeah. kind of the Cody Wilson yeah. position where you can talk about X, Y, and Z all you want. But I can get a micro light, fly above your property mm-hmm. in the airspace that I'm allowed to fly through, you know, whatever. Right. And land on Mason's lot property somewhere else. Yeah. And I think it only comes into play as you and I's specific positioning of you're your own nation. Sure. Well, yeah. And the thing you is, know, is but you, I land yeah. a million immigrants here. They can't cross into your land. Well, this kind of kind of goes to my sort of statist uh, solution or whatever to the immigration problem would be allowing uh, shared responsibility and individual sponsorship. So if you decide that you want to sponsor somebody to come into the country, then you would also be responsible for a portion of anything that they do that's wrong. So uh, like, you know, sort of actually sort of I do this. So Victoria for those of you who don't know, is an immigrant. Um, that's my wife. And in order for her to get a green card, I had to sponsor her and show that I could be financially responsible for her and provide for the financial assets that she needs to be an American. And uh, and it actually doesn't have anything to do with how much money she earns. It's it's that I would need to be able to sponsor, like be able to provide. So that was part of what happened with getting her to come in here. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think the financial... S- responsibility is necessarily the thing but like one of my like status solutions or whatever to allowing more immigrants to come in here more easily and more quickly is to have some sort of sponsorship program where you could directly sponsor somebody but you are responsible to a portion of whatever they do so like we had this case recently where that illegal immigrant guy killed that chick uh mm-hmm. or that woman i don't chick i guess sounds kind of flippant but you know i don't know her so like i don't really I feel bad for the situation, but I don't, I don't know their family. But, uh, so this woman got killed by an illegal immigrant. Okay. That's, that's the story or whatever. Under the Jacobian statist solution or whatever, whoever sponsored him to be in this country would be partially responsible for damages in, I would say probably not on a criminal level, but on a civil level would be responsible for damages that this individual, um, perpetrated. So this would make, so if, you know, all of the people who are in favor of open borders and stuff like that, I'm not going to say leftists because I'm largely in favor of open borders. There's a lot of people I would probably sponsor to come in. I would have to get to know them though before I sponsored them. Um, this would A, allow a lot more people to come in. It would also form new industries. The new industry would be sponsorship insurance. So companies like you know, strawberry growers or tomato growers or various, you know, growers of food that need cheap labor would buy sponsorship insurance. They would sponsor a whole bunch of people to come in and pick for them. 
Those people, if they didn't commit crimes, great. They got the cheap labor. If they did commit crimes, well, they're only out a little bit of money because they bought the insurance. Yeah. So, so my yeah, this is, yeah. I'm not. This gonna, is I, a I don't want to argue. Status society. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. St- status so, society solution. So this would be like legislation. Okay. I'd propose as Senator Jacob Lindsay or whatever. Yeah, so it's just to get it's to it's to elite to see part of the issue to me with the borders is it's a pressure problem. So there's a there's a pressure of people trying to move into the country and there's a you know like a pressure cooker. You've got that little cap on top mm-hmm. and, and only a little bit of the steam comes out at a time. The issue is that there's a lot of pressure built up. There's and and not only on the outside, this is, you know, this is how pressure and vacuums work is you have a different amount of pressure on the outside as on the inside. So that's the the pressure differential is what causes the force on the inside of the lid. So uh, there is a there is on the outside there's this very large room that has low pressure, and on the inside there's this small amount of room with high pressure. And so there's a lot of this high pressure people trying to come in, and the low pressure system on the outside is saying, "Yeah, let the pressure out because this is low pressure. We don't need we. It's fine. Let it out." And so there is a demand for labor in the United States for cheap labor. Now, granted, if they came in legally, there may be other issues. It may be that they're not they're in demand for cheap labor, but they but with the regulations of the government, they would not want that labor. They would want the illegal labor still. So there's a, there's a lot of issues with it, but that kind of is getting off the point. Kind of going back to the homesteading thing, um, and it does sort of tie into the immigration. And is that you know when you fly over with a plane or you violate their property rights. And Walter Block has this uh, saying that he says in a lot of his speeches. He says if it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. And since everything either moves or doesn't move. It should be private. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that he talks about is air traffic. So he says, you know, you've got somebody 25,000 feet up or whatever, and they fly over your property. This is what's called the de minimis um, property rights violation. Um, so it would be the same as like if I shined a flashlight on the side of your house and presuming that it's just on the side of your house at night, you're asleep. It doesn't go in your window, doesn't wake you up, doesn't do anything. It is a, it is technically a private a property rights violation. But it is a de minimis private property rights violation. It's not doing any harm, and um, it's not really actionable. This mm. this gets into the other point because when I when I turned off the program yesterday and thought about it a little bit while I was walking the dog, I was like, you know what? My position on the abandonment thing didn't really make a huge amount of sense, and and also it was a lot of cultural beliefs and stuff like that that played into it. And so I went ahead and did a little bit more research, and guess who's got some work done on this very topic and specifically mentions Rothbard? Uh, David. Uh... What's that guy's name? The, oh, the Liberla or whatever, the, the Spanish dude? No, 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 there's a, so, and I, I apologize to him because I always forget his name, but there's a, the guy, Murray Rothbard, when he met, was basically like, today I've met a genius. Oh, yeah, I, I don't remember his name either, but that's not who yeah. it is. It's, no, uh, I, I, yeah. I know it's Walter Block. <laughs> no, 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 it's not, it's not Walter Block. Walter, Walter <laughs> Block does have another article that I want to bring up that does, that is relevant, I think, but is it, it, Dr. Robert P. Murphy? It's not. <laughs> it's Stefan Kinsella, mm-hmm. uh, who's been on Tom Woods several times. Stefan Kinsella is a really interesting guy. I'm not even sure that he's a Austrian. I think he might just be like a critic of Austrian, he might be like an independent economist. Anyways, it, it, I don't know what he is, but I he, think he's yeah. I think Tom called him a libertarian or liberty leaning economist. Yeah, so he actually does some work on this, and he brought up a lot of points that I thought were really interesting. And and his his point was in um the first first places he basically says that people like Walter Block and Murray Rothbard and Hans Hermann Hoppe and these types of people. Uh, have a really great view on how to take virgin territory and make it unvirgin, make it owned. They mm-hmm. have they have no theory really though on abandonment. Or he says that their whatever theory they have doesn't really hold up. And so he says I so 
because he's a when you gulp the water, it makes a huge loud noise. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but, uh, he's, he's got a whole big thing where he, he studies civil law a lot and he does, he's done a lot of work on, um, on like common law and things like that. So he uh-huh. says, he says, he says the first place that he goes is he goes and looks at tradition to see like what is, what constitutes abandonment? What, how do we, how do we arrive at property? How do we do all these different things? And, um, are you moving paper around now? <laughs> I'm just leaning back. Oh, okay. Cause like, I don't, I don't know if it's picking it up weird, but like now there's a whole bunch of like shh, shh, shh noise. All right. Well, let me, let me lean forward real <laughs> okay. quick. All right. And then do you want me to take a big gulp when it's completely silent so you can isolate it and remove it? Uh, I guess you could do that. Okay. So hang on. All right. Let me see. I'm going to write down that time and see if I can take it out. <laughs> so it's, it's at one fourteen. Okay. So anyway, so he, he says he goes back and kind of looks at, uh, you know, what's going on traditionally. And he says, he says what we really need to arrive at is that we don't really have a good theory for what constitutes abandoned property. Kind of like what you were saying is that like you have this piece of property, you haven't been to it, you haven't thought about it in 10 years, but it's not doing any harm or anything like that, just being there. And then you arrive 10 years later and like somebody's on the land and you're like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is mine. I own it. And they're like, well, you haven't been here. You abandoned it or whatever, you know, what? I, I I would like if I was to come up with a theory like the level of douchiness of the person who's like squatting on your property is equates to the amount of uh property that should be taken away from them. But like, <laughs> so no, but like uh so what he says is that basically what you need is is in order to kind of have this sort of Lockean perspective on property rights or as what we've been talking about the uh uh Walter Blockian. So Lockean, Blockian. So blo- <laughs> the blo- <laughs> the Blockian perspective on uh, property rights is you would need a normative perspective on property, and so so he says, you know, in in English common law and in this very uh, 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 in these historical um, perspectives on law is you do have normative behavior, and so what the society at large kind of deems correct or incorrect is what's going to decide whether or not property is still owned or not owned. And it's not necessarily the government from on high, you know, making these edicts or whatever. It's just what people do is that, you know, when you park your bike in front of a house or whatever, you're clearly not abandoning the bike. And that's normative. If you are away on vacation and you're not in your house, you're on vacation, you haven't abandoned your house, that's normative. We know that we know as a society or as individuals that live in the society that uh, you being on vacation doesn't mean that you've abandoned the property. This ties in really, really well to another paper. So this is Stephen Kinsella's from his blog. You can go to it. It's um, stephenkinsella.com. It's a 2014 article that he wrote called Mises, Rothbard, and Hoppe on the original sin in the distribution of property rights. So original sin is in quotes. Um, so he, he wrote this October 7th, 2014. Um, go ch- take a look at that if you want. It's on stephenkinsella.com. I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's, it's very very interesting, uh, and hopefully, Mason, you'll be able to read it, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Yeah. But anyways, this plays into uh, another paper by our, our boy, Walter Block. And um, this paper is called Libertarianism, Positive Obligations, and Property Abandonment, colon, Children's Rights. And so what this what this paper is about, to kind of give a summary of it, it's is when is a baby considered abandoned, and when can you come and take the baby away from the parents, um, you know, if the situation is dire or whatever. So he kind of starts out in the paper by going over, um, like if you, if your baby, so 
again, this is normative. So in the past, if you couldn't raise a child, you were, you were expected as the mother or father of the child that you couldn't raise to go leave the child on the doorstep of the church. Because in the past, somebody's always at the church. They'll hear the baby crying. They'll come out. They'll get the baby. They'll bring it inside. Right. And then they'll put it in an orphanage. You know, whether or not the orphanage is good or bad, that's kind of irrelevant, but that is, uh, that's an obligation that you would have, uh, because it's a normative obligation based on the society as a whole. The individuals in the society kind of hold this belief. You're a piece of shit if you don't do it. And as, as a piece of shit for not doing it, you are not allowed to trade with us basically. Uh, or we'll take some sort of other violent act against you. And since we all agree on this violent act or whatever, nobody's going to hold us accountable. So this becomes kind of norm, normative. So Walter Block kind of takes it to a further extent in this, and he talks about it as in in the case of uh, forestalling property. So there are certain things that from a biological standpoint and from a philosophical standpoint, we know that it takes to raise a child. So you have to feed a child. You have to uh, – actually, they did these terrible experiments in the Soviet Union that show that if you don't hold a child, they just spontaneously die. So, um, you do have to hold the child for a certain amount of time. You have to, you know, baby them and like, you know, talk to them. If you don't talk to them, they become retarded, um, or very low IQ, like low, like the low fifties. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of stuff that you have to do for a baby to, in order for the baby to mature and stuff. And these are all normative, normative obligations. So the society says like, so biologically the baby needs this. You don't actually have a a positive obligation to do these things unless you are claiming the parental rights of the infant. So if you claim the parental rights of the infant, that is a property right in the parental rights, not a property right in the child. So that to make that very clear, we're not talking about owning anybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're talking about rights that you can own. So owning parental rights, children are valuable. Like how much joy does your daughter give you? You know, Infinite. Yeah, she gives tons of joy to you. That's valuable to you. So, and as Mises taught us, or actually, uh, Eugen van Baverg taught us this is that value is subjective. So, um, you know, you have a value, your child is a value to you. So being the parent of your child is a very, very high value. There are people who do not see value in being a parent and that's, you know, their choice, uh, value is subjective. So, you know, I, and from a normative position, they're a piece of shit. But from a from a just a strictly libertarian rights position, that's fine. What they cannot do, because everything must be owned or should be owned, they they cannot forestall somebody who will be a parent to that child from taking the rights of that child. So you let's say you have a baby, not you. Let's say that uh, Lola has a baby. So uh, Lola has a baby. She, she doesn't like the baby. It's ugly. It's got you know the wrong color hair or something like that. Or its nose is squished up in a Pokemon nose or something. You know something that she doesn't like. So. She she has the baby. She's like, ooh, gross, disgusting. She puts the baby in the back room of the house. The baby's crying. And she doesn't feed it and everything, and eventually the baby dies. So she has no pop- positive obligation to feed that baby. She has no pop- positive obligation to, you know, hold the baby, hug the baby, love the baby, all those things that a baby needs. What she does have a positive obligation to do, though, is not to prevent other people from coming and getting the baby. So the very, very minimum from Walter Block's position is that she doesn't really have any positive obligation, but it is a de minimis imposition to her to notify somebody that the baby exists. And so she would just have to say, look, I'm not going, I'm not going to take care of this baby. I'm putting it in the back room. Um, you can come get it and you can homestead the parental rights of the baby or you can not homestead the parental rights of the baby. That's fine. So 
how does this tie into the abandonment issue? So in this case, Lola has abandoned this little baby with a Pokemon nose. So uh, she does have a de minimis responsibility to just at least notify somebody that they've abandoned. If she does not notify somebody, they would ha- it would be a obligation on the person who wants to homestead the rights of the baby to prove that she has abandoned the property rights of the baby or of, of the parental rights of the baby. Right. So I think mm-hmm. that this kind of ties it back in together. Is that where are the responsibilities? So since everything should be owned, let's go back to our example of the tower in Alaska that we had last time where you homesteaded it just for the pure, you know, austere beauty of Alaska or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the tower falls over and, um, you know, and it's kind of clear or or it seems clear to me that you've abandoned it. It would be up to me as the person who wants to go farm there to prove and it would probably behoove me to prove it before I went and started my farm there to prove that you had abandoned the property in a normative case. If it cannot be proven in a normative case that you've abandoned the property, then the property is still yours. And you don't have to defend the, you don't have to defend your ownership of the property. Like somebody will come, you'll come and say like, well, you know, he built this tower. The tower was for the austere beauty or whatever of Alaska. And, um, see, it fell over. He's not repairing it or anything like that. And then you would, you know, make a claim or whatever to local insurance agency. You'd say like, hey, you know, this guy abandoned the property. I want it. Can you insure me? And the insurance company would be like, well, he claimed it before and he mixed his labor with the land and he appropriated the land to himself. It seems clear to me that he owned it. And you say, well, yeah, but you know, he, the tower fell over and he hasn't been there in 30 years and like all these different things. And the insurance company would say, okay, well, look, we maybe will insure you. It's going to take a third party to do this. So they would say, yeah, maybe we'll insure you. And it does seem to us that maybe he has abandoned it. Let's go talk to him. And they they send you a letter or whatever, or they call you on the phone and they say, hey, Mason, did you abandon this property? Because it looks like, you know, the tower fell over. Uh, this other guy, he, he wants to go claim the land or whatever. And you, and really to me, from a normative perspective, all you'd have to say is, no, 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 I meant the tower to fall over. I sometimes stand on the rebel, rubble or I pay, or people will pay me to come stand on the rubble because there used to be a tower there and it's historical. Well, it's like my art project now. Yeah, exactly. The degradation of humanity. Right, exactly. You could say something like that. And now, granted, this is a normative perspective. So, like, you know, maybe the majority of people in that region or whatever would be like, yeah, whatever, bullshit, Mason's lying or whatever. And, you know, you don't get your property. And that that may be the case. I mean, we do live in a world where there are other people and other people do not always respect property rights. From a purely philosophical perspective, if, if this person, I think, could demonstrate that you abandoned the property, he would get the, he would get to make his farm on the property. And from a purely philosophical perspective, if you decided it was your art project and you could prove that it was your art project or whatever as, you know, a de minimis defense or whatever of your property, because they may say like, well, no, you clearly abandoned it and you're guilty of not doing the de minimis thing saying that you're abandoning it. Because, you know, there's, there may be an economic advantage in, in a lot of cases to abandoning property. So, uh, I mean, like, imagine you own that tower land or whatever, the tower fell over, and then some, you know, uh, you allow somebody to come on your property, they pay you 50 bucks or whatever to go on your property, and then, uh, they go to the tower, and then something on the tower falls on their head or whatever. They're like, well, they didn't, I didn't pay for this thing to fall on my head, and, but you took, accepted my money to come on the property to go look at the rubble or whatever, and, you know, you may be responsible for that. So, in that case, you might be like, you know what, the building is too damaged, I don't have the money to repair it or whatever. Let me do the de minimis thing and just say, just go tell my insurance company real quick that, like yeah yeah i'm abandoning this property or whatever so yeah there, there's there are or you know the wildfire you know any any number of things mm-hmm. um so what i'd like to so taking homesteading aside mm-hmm. everything is ownable and everything should be owned so i buy this alaska land from you right so i haven't mixed any labor you possibly haven't mixed any labor let's say it's a park 
Mm-hmm. And we put down diamond paths, so they're infinitely, they're, you can't destroy them. Right. And the whole point of the park is there's no park lights because it's to see the, you know, Aurora at night you can see the Aurora Borealis during the day. Your view isn't obstructed by light posts that don't have a function. Right. So there's no needed upkeep to the park, and it's a free-to-all to use park. Right. So I traded a value she's you know you wanted a thousand seashells for this park so i traded you that i don't advertise the park because it's a thought experiment to me to see who will you know one of the things i have a problem with is like so as a thought experiment right you have moved twice in the last three years yeah how many times did you find property inside of your home that you didn't remember even owning. Right. Well, uh, probably so, not very many times, <laughs> but well, I'm sure I've, I've done it. Yeah. So, you know, we recently cleaned up a spare bedroom in our house where I record the podcast from. Yeah. And there were a couple of things we moved around and my wife goes, I don't even remember we owned this. So one of the things that I have a problem with is I have a property. It's yeah. a million acres. And the core of the property is the best farmland that's ever existed. I don't, use the farmland because I don't want to use it because I'm saving it for whatever reason. Right. I'm not doing anything to upkeep the property. You know, it's just, it's sitting out there. I'm not mixing any labor with it. Right. Somebody comes at home, says it to me. I did something to acquire the property from the first time. Mm -hmm. Yes. If I bought it from the government, there's arguments that I didn't really own it. You know, you can't buy stolen property, but let's just pretend you put up a fence around this million acres. I I took the fence. You put the fence, you put the fence up. Somebody put it up originally. No, no, no. You put up the fence. Yep. I took the fence down. So does the fence, but did it take you labor to take the fence down? No, no, no. Hang on. Let's set that aside. All right. It's 25 years later. I've done no additional mixing of my labor with this land. Right. I don't have insurance on it because if it catches on fire, I don't care because it's, you know, just a giant field. Mm -hmm. But in the center, it has the best land. If you come and homestead it, then like that, you know, the small partial that's the best, you had to cross my land that you don't intend to use. To get to the center. And I've claimed right. all of it. So it's not like, you know, Walter Block where it's forestalling because I'm stopping you from getting to the small acreage that I'm not claiming. Right. I'm claiming the whole thing. So by that same token, I, and I guess maybe this is where my thought process is of not evolving, but I'm trying to work out this art, not argument, but thought process. Like mm. you enter my property, like my actual home, you find this picture of my wife and daughter that we forgot we owned, mm-hmm. haven't done anything with, haven't mixed any labor with it for 25 years. It's been a photo frame and you take it and leave with it you've stolen from me yep. you've taken physical property from sure me. yep in a norm in, in in a normative sense that is correct yeah and what i'm trying to figure out is if in a libertarian in the non-normative sense necessarily right. but from the abstract have i actually been stolen from in that case Right. So, and I think, yeah, I, I think that I think it it I think that is kind of where Kinsella comes in on this, and he says that it's not clear. Um, mm-hmm. It's not clear because there would have to be some. So we we don't live in a vacuum, and a lot of libertarian theory kind of acts like it's in a vacuum. And mm-hmm. um, the 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 deal would have to be what exactly does the society as a whole think? Because a lot of the action that you and I take in life is based off of what we expect other people to do. So you could be a, a crazy eccentric or whatever and homestead um, a bunch of land just and actually. This is funny because this is exactly what 
I asked Walter Block when he gave me this article to read. Like he himself gave this to me to read. Um, mm-hmm. the, the popsicle sticks one. So, and I asked him, I said, yeah, but if I, I, if it, it's purely, purely for not for people to walk around a park or whatever to see it, it's just purely for me to have the idea or whatever of that the land is there untouched. And his answer was, well, how would you know it's not touched if you don't go make sure it's not touched? And then wouldn't it be touched by you? And, mm-hmm. So, like, if the idea is that you have this land and your idea is that it's going to be untouched by human hands or whatever, how would you know that the guy homesteaded that center part? But even if you did know, and assuming that you, it's like maybe you, you're on the edge of the property and you're okay with it being used, like, up to five feet to the property or something like that, and you also own a house there and you're okay with that house being used and you see the guy leaving the property or whatever in order for you to go on there and see what he's done to the property, you'd have to then use the property. And so there's that part. But then there's also the other part is that you have to get other people to kind of go along with you. If you don't have insurance on the property and you don't have it registered or anything like that, you have to prove that you've done something. And if you've mixed no labor with it, if you've done no improvements to it, if you've done nothing to it, it's not clear to anybody besides you that it's been homesteaded. And so in a normative sense, you would have to demonstrate that or there there would have to be some sort of pre-established cultural norm for uh, people doing this to land. And in, in, in a in a purely philosophical sense, you just wouldn't be able to prove it. Well, so like, let's let's assume again, take the Cody Wilson perspective. Satellites exist. Mm-hmm. I don't have to touch the land. Mm-hmm. I can take massively detailed satellite photos and not interact physically with the land. Right. So I can see that you violated my property rights. Okay. But from a demonstrative standpoint, if I previously had registered this land, you know, the sale purchase from Jacob corporation to Mesa corporation pulled out the stump post and I continue fastidiously watch it via satellite imagery. Yeah. Then it would probably be yours. You'd probably be able to demonstrate that that it's your property. And and that's where I think my argument um, from a libertarian perspective, the abstract. Yeah. And it's not an argument, but it was a question. If you stole that photo, you know, of my wife and I that you sure. forgot, that I forgot I owned, you had to come into property that I was actively using. Right. Like, because I said my home. You literally went into property that I maintain mm-hmm. and have actively there. So you trespassed. So it is theft because even though I didn't remember that the property was there, I put it in a place that I was actively defending otherwise. Right. Right. Well, and, and so, I, but in the proper in in the case of you taking pictures continuously or 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 at intervals or whatever with a satellite, you are also actively defending it. You're keeping an eye on it. And, no, no, no. So I, I'm already fine with that. Yeah. So, but that's what I'm. That's why I think that. The, I think we, we're not at an impasse, but we're, we're at a, we're at this classic gray ground where I think the normative, um, concept does exist, but that's one of the things with like, you know, well, I, I think right- I think this kind of goes back to what I said earlier, which is is it's sort of the same deal as technically you're right. Is it actionable mm-hmm. is the question, and it's kind of like the flashlight thing I was talking about earlier. Technically, yeah, you have violated. You've shined photons that belong to you onto somebody else's property. Technically, yeah, technically you're right. I have violated your property rights, but from from an actionable standpoint in purely philosophical you're not watching the land you're not doing all this sort of other stuff and, and somehow you've justly acquired it and we're assuming that you've justly acquired it um and you haven't been there in 25 years or whatever the deal you whatever the deal is and for whatever reason you didn't register it and you didn't take all of these actions that are you know because in, in libertarianism there are no positive obligations there's there are de minimis obligations occasionally but um you didn't take any of the positive obligations that is that i think you're you're correct that person has stolen it but this kind of is it kind of goes into that same sort of thing is it's like 
yeah, he has stolen it, but if you were none the wiser, you wouldn't know, and so it wouldn't hurt you. And yeah, and and that's the and that's where my argument has always been in the, not argument, but thought process in this has been that you determine that this is a curse. You know, if you own a trillion acres of land and you lose five mm-hmm. and you never figure it out, you're no, you're no worse off. But one of the things that I think, you know, the free market solves this problem altogether. Yeah. Because what would happen is there would be a land registry agent. Yeah. I think that's what so, the blockchain is going to be, is going to end up being for is, is that there'll be blockchain registry of property. And now granted, right now we live in a world where pretty much everything's owned, but kind of to go back to your airplane thing or the satellite thing is mm-hmm. I think that people should be able to homestead air transport paths. So like if so like if you're a farmer and a plane flies over your field at like a you know a, a, I don't know what the great altitude is, but an altitude that doesn't really affect you, it doesn't make a huge amount of noise, uh doesn't scare all your birds or your chickens or your dogs or whatever the deal is. Uh you don't own so actually Walter Block talks about this too. You don't own infinitely down, you don't own infinitely up, right? So, like, your property doesn't radiate from the Earth to infinity, and it doesn't go all the way down to the center of the Earth. Your property is the property that you've homesteaded. So what you need to, let's say it's a farm, what you need to make your farm operatable on that property. So let's say that you, let's say you own a farm in South Africa. You have to drill a borehole. The borehole gets to some, to the water table. You get water out while you have homesteaded the borehole. And you've homesteaded the aquifer that you're draining from, or at least a portion of the aquifer. Mm -hmm. You've homesteaded the land that you're growing the food on. You've homesteaded the air to some degree. You've homesteaded the air. If if somebody, like, let's say they build a bubble around you and they suck all the air out and you die, well, they can't do that. You've homesteaded the the free-flowing of clean air or of air that is usable. You've also homesteaded the free-flowing of a certain amount of carbon onto your property because mm-hmm. you're using that. So if somebody... And the, the light that's actually hitting the property. Yeah, exactly. So somebody can't build like a gigantic skyscraper to block the sun or something like that. You know, it's like there's there are certain things that you've homesteaded, but you don't homestead to infinity. So if somebody flies a plane over you, they maybe are flying over your property. That doesn't mean they're using your property. They're just flying over it and it's and it's a diminutive interruption. It doesn't hurt your property. It doesn't hurt you other than you may have a psychological thing about it or whatever but if you have a psychological thing about it then you need to homestead the air ahead of time so uh i mean telescope yeah yeah maybe a telescope you say look i i you i have this telescope i frequently look up if a plane flies and in, into it or whatever it, it disrupts my view and that's annoying and i don't like it so you can't fly over me okay fine people can go around um but also i think that if if it's unhomesteaded like a flight Let's say a flight at 2,200 feet from Dallas to Norfolk, that could be a homesteaded route. You could, you could own that land at that, that footage. Just like on the radio, prior to the FCC getting involved, you could homestead frequency 96.1 or whatever. So you're like, okay, well, I have, I have 96.1 through 96.5. That's my frequency. And I've homesteaded it because A, I'm the first one to broadcast on that frequency. And B, I am the most powerful one to broadcast on that frequency. Somebody else comes in with a more powerful broadcast, then you're not screwed because you homesteaded it first. You're the first one to get there. So, mm-hmm. so you've, so now you own that. Now the FCC came in to try to, you know, solve this. They really came in to shut down communist radio broadcasts, and, <laughs> which, you know, to, on, on the one hand, like I, I, don't like the communist radio broadcasts, but it was, I think in Chicago, there was a, yes. there was a, a pirate radio station kind of 
It wasn't pirate at the time, though, because the FCC didn't exist. There was somebody broadcasting on a certain frequency. And and this is the what annoys me about it is that the government came in and shut that down. And so then for a very long time, you just had AM frequencies. Like FM mm-hmm. frequencies, I think, only started in the 70s. And now they knew they existed, but they didn't broadcast on FM. And mm-hmm. um, and then there's, you know, the Bluetooth frequencies is, is radio technically. Um, and that has been discovered since the 1930s, I think, like late 1930s, I mean, maybe so the early Wi-Fi. 40s. Yeah, Wi-Fi is radio. Like, there's a lot of other frequencies that people could have broadcast on. So by the FCC coming in regulating and and forcing people to license various bandwidths on the radio frequency, they stifled innovation in radio transmission. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is kind of the same the same deal as you can go in and homestead this. I think by the FCC, the not the FCC. Uh, what's the who regulates the airlines? Um, FAA. FAA by regulating the airlines, they have stifled innovation in um, airline travel in a lot of ways. So let's say that that you Mason Joseph or whatever you have Mason Joseph Airlines and you figure out that like by flying from Norfolk to Charlotte, from Charlotte to Colorado, to, from Colorado to San Francisco or whatever, this is the fastest route, and you've got these like kind of small planes and they can do it really quickly and you homestead that route at 2200 feet and then somebody else comes along and they're like well i got a faster plane i'd like to fly that route or whatever we'll give you a cut of the deal or whatever you're like okay that's fine you know let's we'll coordinate this you should be able to say nobody else can fly this route at at in this you know area or whatever at this route um during the times that i'm flying planes through it or whatever um at these altitudes that should be you should be able to homestead that but that's not how it works is the government then kind of comes in they coordinate what you can do and what you can't do there might be an optimal altitude there may not be an optimal altitude i don't really know about aeronautics but uh there these routes should be able to be homesteaded and and then people could whoever flies it first and does it and then they should also be allowed to be abandoned like if you if you if alaska airlines homesteaded these 20 routes or whatever and at these various altitudes then and they go out of business part of them going into bankruptcy should be to sell off the routes and uh, so, I mean, this is kind of like, there's a lot of stuff that makes normative property ar- arguments or whatever very difficult for people who live in the real world like you and me is because we don't have a normative perspective that doesn't involve the government. Uh-huh. So it makes it sometimes thinking about these things and the listeners, I'm sure if, if you're not like hardcore into, you know, anarchist philosophy and that sort of stuff, like Mason and I, sometimes wrapping your head around these types of things is difficult. It's, it's difficult for me. And like I read... Rothbard and Block and, you know, even Rand and, and, uh, these types of people all the time. Stefan Kinsella, like I sit there and read uh, on the Mises website every day. I go read Mises Wire and stuff. There's all sorts, of, and sometimes it's difficult for me to wrap my hand, head around these. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to start this Liberty Topless kind of YouTube, maybe 10 minute YouTube things kind of explaining very basic concepts. Um, oh man, you, you spoiled that they're supposed to go back and listen to the next previous uh, episode. Oh well. Tie back. Yeah. Okay. Well. Tie back anyways, because the previous episode, it was a good one. But it's yeah, sort of, good. it's to, it's to explain these kind of basic concepts, because a lot of things that I talk about, I take for granted that other people have read it. And even when I talk to Victoria about it, it's like, I'll say something about it, and then she'll be like, well, I don't understand this. And it's like, oh, I have to go back and explain to you these 30 different things in order for this point to make sense. And And here's... And this is where this kind of ties back to our whole concept of the show. You know, I... I read the block paper and I've read some libertarian stuff and you know, I, I have a good feeling of it because we communicate every yeah. day 
right. in some capacity, generally about liberty. Right. And but you know, here we are having a fairly high level libertarian conversation right. without, you know, one of us being very well read and the other being not well read at all, but still having a you know, where your your ideas are being challenged, not necessarily challenged. Um, kind of challenged, because I, I did have to rethink this a little bit. Further explore. Yeah, further explore. Because the, yeah, the, the abandonment issue, I had th- I had thought about it because I did ask Walter Block about it when he and I had a, a correspondence for not very many emails, like four or five emails, because I thought about that and and then just accepted his answer. But he didn't mm-hmm. even get into the normative argument. It it took, go, after you and I had this conversation, it took going and reading Stephen Kinsella to kind of go like, ah, okay, I understand what what Stephen Kinsella is saying is that, like Stephen Kinsella's point is that we don't really have a limit on a lot of these things because it's a, it's a, it is a value argument. It's, it's a, it's, you know, it is a perspective of value. Do you have, do you have, is your value of knowing that this land exists higher than my value of being able to farm it? That's, that's subjective. Like it, it can't be reasoned out. Yeah. And I, I think that's what makes this such a rich and fertile area of conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, because, you know, and to tie this back to the Gary Johnson position mm-hmm. where, you know, I am, you, both of us are cultural libertarians. Yeah. And I forget, how did you describe Gary Johnson again? Uh, um, I just said natural libertarian. I think he, like he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he so we, has natural instincts. Yeah. We're both natural libertarians, but you wanted to know why you thought this mm. and why this was appropriate. Whereas I've always been kind of like, no, this is just right. <laughs> like, I don't need to know the, like the, like, I don't need to know that there's an abandonment issue with homesteading. Right. Cause like, I didn't even really kind of remember that part of the episode. Like, right. That was like, that was one of my huge fallbacks because I didn't think of it as abandonment issues because I thought of it as a theft issue. Right. But I see it as an abandonment issue now because it's, you know, like, <sighs> Because the 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 Waltian Blockian position, as he presents it, is you have a de minimis uh, responsibility for notifying somebody about the property or the right. the fact that you are or are not claiming these rights because it isn't necessarily fair for you and and fair is a bad word but we're going to use it well i think and i think i used fair a lot last episode too which is very sjw or whatever it's 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 not about fairness but But yeah but fair is the best yeah fair it's not sjw because fair was fair we can't let them have fair right this was this was in the arguments this was in the conversation before sjw's ever came involved right so what it, what it is is it's it's forestalling norm- it, it's forestalling well, no. if you don't do it yeah it's a it's a normative thing yeah. where fairness is a thing like we we expect liber- we one of the things that we like about the non-aggression principle is it is fair mm-hmm. you know you have the right to act as you wish as long as you don't harm another mm-hmm. and that's fair like you can be an ass but you can't be violent mm-hmm. So, but that's where, you know, like the Walter blocking position and oh man, I wish I'd get back to it, but <laughs> I've forgotten it for the moment. But I think this is a, a good place for us to end because yeah. I think we, I think we, you know, this is two good episodes where we took a topic that interests both of us very well. Right. And it also, and so this is not what I was trying to say about block, which is fine. I don't remember it because it's getting a little late for us. Yeah. But the, this is where 
one of the reasons to be an abolitionist and to free oneself from the government because it taints the, even the concept of the arguments right. oh, it does, so yeah. much and provides, like you said, this normative position where people think we're crazy because we're saying there shouldn't be a government. And just like that, that meme I showed you of you know, political humor from Reddit where they're like, you know, Rand Paul, Ayn Rand, and... Paul Ryan. Yeah, Paul Ryan. Um, walk into a bar, get a drinking and poison and die because you don't believe in regulations. And I was like, well, people die. Like, you know, you watch um, Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. People are serving rotten food and there's health inspectors. Right. Like, well, people, I, I, I thought you know, I thought your point on that one was really good where you said like uh, this, the same three people or whatever walk in Flint, Michigan and die because the government supplied water is tainted. Yeah. And the municipality is poisonous water. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, you can find, you can find examples of where I wouldn't even say it's a market failure, but like where people are pieces of shit, but like to, to use like the most crude way to describe it or whatever, it's like people are not great all the time and, and the market is not going to solve all of those problems, but there are market mechanisms that will um, prevent yeah, people and, from and, selling and obtaining alcohol. That's the thing is it, it provides to, to our argument in a, as fast as nutshell as possible. And I think mm -hmm. this is a Liberty topless video. Mm -hmm. um, our argument as fast as possible is that the market mechanism for unrewarding somebody for murdering right. their patron is much more effective than the government way because the government will basically say, well, he passed all his things and this was a fluke accident. Right. Whereas we're saying, no, you've fundamentally destroyed somebody's life by putting out a shingle and then failing to meet the criteria of putting out that shingle. Right. So, and then, you well, know, so you know we're what? saying... That, I've, I've got one more thing after you finish your thought to include. Sure, no, that's, that's, that's my thought. Okay. The one more thing to include is you and I have this, like, way of speaking that is where we have all this kind of background knowledge in, in libertarian culture. And one of the reasons why we started doing this show is because we don't have that background in wine culture. Correct. And so we are trying to present kind of a, uh, maybe not layman's, but like a, a more every man kind of perspective on wine. And so the wine that we did this week, both of us had the same one. Do you have any additional thoughts on the wine now that we've uh, had a couple, a uh, couple glass? Well, you've, you finished your bottle, I'm sure. Um, yeah. I, I, I had only had a, you know, a little under our, a standard glass for us. Okay. Yeah. So I, um, I had quite a bit of it and actually yeah. it's uh 12% alcohol by volume. So it's not actually that alcoholic. Um, I don't really have anything to add. Uh, as, as far as a cab goes, this is the, I guess this is what I'll add. I just said I had nothing to add. I'm like our old boss where he's like, no, nothing to add, but let me talk to you for 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it's, as far as like a cab goes, I'm not crazy about this. It's for the money. It's awesome. Uh, for somebody who likes cabs like me, the tannic, the tannic aspect of it being gone is too disruptive to me enjoying it as a cab. If this mm -hmm. was, if this was presented to me as like a sweet Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir or a sweet Merlot, I am or just sweet red blend. Yeah, a sweet red blend. I might think more highly of it, but because I, th I think that just the perspective of being a cab and it not being very cabby has made me go like, uh, now that being said, I'm almost done with the bottle. Um, I don't feel super drunk. I'm a little bit. Uh, buzzed, but, uh, mm -hmm. it's, but as we've mentioned before, um, drinks can be, or wine can be either 1% above or 1% low. If I was to guess, especially based on the legs on this one, I would guess that this is 1% below. This is probably closer to 11%. Mm -hmm. Um, 
just because a I don't feel very buzzed. I didn't have a big meal before this. Um, I can I can kind of uh, tilt my glass and look at the legs, and it doesn't have you know legs for miles or whatever, which is an indication of the um, alcohol content. Um, uh-huh. So I'm thinking that this is probably closer to 11. percent It's a it's a good wine, a good a good table wine to just have around the house. I wouldn't tell your guests that it's a cab if they are wine snobs. Um, yeah, so just like I, think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against the NAP if you have libertarian snobs around. So, <laughs> yeah. So what, what I would say is, unlike the Shiraz, this fails in being a cab, mm-hmm. whereas the Shiraz it has everything you expect in a Shiraz, just without being stand out. Whereas this does not follow the cab line. Yeah. Now, if Mason, you would like to do the Shiraz next week, I actually bought the Shiraz as well. Um, I will save um, that for next week if you'd like, or I've got another Georgian that we can do next week. I think we should do another Georgian because okay. I have a couple of – I don't have the Shiraz at the moment. Okay. I do need to get it again to write a review of it, and we'll we'll do that in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Well, that sounds, like yeah. a, that sounds like a good plan. I'll put the Shiraz up on the shelf, and I will bring out the Georgian for next week. So if you guys are interested in a white Georgian, I will be reviewing a white Georgian next episode. They are – the Georgians so far are very interesting. This one is a great varietal that I don't think Mason or I have ever tried before. So keep an eye out on uh, at Tasting Anarchy on Twitter.com, or you can email us at uh, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, or to visit us at tastinganarchy.com. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, and we will have the video, or not the video, we'll have the episode up on tastinganarchy.com. I usually post the episodes on Twitter as well, so if if you keep uh, an eye out for that. Also, if you subscribe to us on Stitcher right now, I think we're going to try to get iTunes up and running correctly soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and it's also on Podbean. Um, if you subscribe to us there, that helps out. And also, if you leave a review, it helps out a lot too because it bumps us up on the ratings. Right now, there yes. are a few wine shows. We're not exactly in the wine, uh, I guess, wine category. We're kind of wine, kind of political category. So uh, if you leave a review, if you if you like our wine stuff, uh, leave us a review about the wine stuff. If you like the political stuff, leave us a review about the political stuff. Um, if you would like us to focus more on certain aspects of the wine or something, just reach out to us, and um, we can modify the show a little bit for that. Um, yeah. That's all I got to say, I think, tonight. Anything from you, Mason? Have a, everyone. Right. Have a great I'm night. Cool. Bye. And here's Sticks McGee again. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, Blackberry. Wine, wine, Port and sherry. Wine, Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willis Den, he wasn't sailing for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine, he hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day, wine, wine for the other day, wine, wine for the other day, wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? 
Let's get together and get some wine. Some by fifth and some by four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine.